Welcome back to the Untold Civil War podcast. I want to wish all of you a Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays from those of us behind this podcast. I want to thank all of you for the support that you've given me throughout the year and the years prior. And we promise that in the coming season, there will be more episodes and more amazing untold stories uh, coming at you. I want to also recognize those of us who may not be spending tonight or today with our family and friends who may either be deployed in the military, uh, walking a beat in law enforcement, uh, serving at a firehouse uh, in the fire department, or wherever you may be serving our community. And thank you for your service. And I want to say thank you for doing what you do so that the rest of us can spend our holidays with our families. Before we get started here, I had the privilege to interview Father Miller in regards to religion and the Civil War, the topic for today. Now, Father Miller has been a Catholic priest for over 40 years, 47 years, I believe. And so I thought it very appropriate that he give us a sort of Christmas blessing to start us off. So I'm going to let Father Miller take it away. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy the episode. As anybody who's familiar with the uh, Civil War knows, there is many things that came out of the Civil War uh, that we still have around today. And one of them, of course, is uh, music. Uh, the most famous song being Battle Hymn of the Republic, of course, Julia Ward Howe. But there's a couple others, and I thought I would just share a story today <clears throat> of something that became a song uh, very popular today around Christmas time. And at this holiday time of the year, I think it's an appropriate story to tell. This goes back to the famous poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, who already by the time of the war was a well-known poet, was, was well-esteemed and respected. And he lived in Cambridge, Massachusetts. But on the eve of the war, just before it broke out, tragedy hit his life. His wife, Fanny, was in her room trying to, to dip some wax to preserve some curls of her daughter. And uh, the wax, the fire, caught her dress on fire. And it went up so quickly that she couldn't put it out. Uh, Wadsworth couldn't put it out. He actually burned himself trying to embrace her and with his hands and put it out. And unfortunately she died. And that was 1861. Uh, and shortly after that, the war started. So he said, shortly after that, when the Christmas came around, he said, how inexpressibly sad are all the holidays Perhaps someday God will give me peace. So uh, the war started and uh, he had several children. <clears throat> I believe it was his oldest child. Charles felt he wanted to be in the war like a lot of young men did. So he ran away literally from home to join the war. And he wound up in the cavalry, wound up being a lieutenant in the cavalry. He was badly wounded at the mine run operations. And he had a bullet that came into his shoulder blades and nestled next to his spine. So Wadsworth again was faced with a potential tragedy, went back and forth to see him. But his son pulled through and recovered and went on to a long life. And apparently that event or right around that time had an effect on Wadsworth. And he had a change of heart towards God and faith and the human race. And he sat down literally, I believe, on Christmas Day. 1864. I might be wrong on that, but it was right about that time. And he sat down and wrote this poem 
which later on, as we will all recognize, became a great hymn. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the world's words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And thought as how the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. But in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor does he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail with peace on earth, goodwill to men. So I simply share that today as we face the troubles and tragedies of this world, the overwhelming problems that all of us wrestle with in this life. I think the message of Wadsworth is still good today. God is not dead. He does not sleep. Don't look for the answers in this world. Look beyond this world to a bigger power, a higher power, to give us meaning and hope and peace. And I wish Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays to all of you who are listening. Welcome to the Untold Civil War, and tonight I sit with Father Robert J. Miller to discuss religion and the Civil War. He is the past president of the Chicago Civil War Roundtable. He is the author of several books, including Both Pray to the Same God, Religion and Faith in the American Civil War. This is the first book-length comprehensive study of religion in the Civil War. And so I'm so glad to have you on the show. Thank you for coming on. Thank you, Paul. It's a pleasure to be here. So just to kick this off, like I ask most of my guests, when did the Civil War bug bite you? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, I was raised in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And we took a lot of trips up in Michigan to what's called the Sioux Locks and Fort Michilimackinac and got me interested in history and archaeology. So I grew up with that, but it was high school probably it got me in history. I had, a, like a lot of people, I had a history teacher in high school, a, a priest, because I was a seminarian. And this priest was a World War II veteran. And uh, the way he talked about World War II was just fascinating. So I wound up reading Rise and Fall, the Third Reich, twice in high school, which is a mammoth book. But the Civil War all came about right around 1980 or so. I was preaching in Vicksburg, Mississippi, and I made this comment from the pulpit, somewhat tack more tactfully than I'll probably say it here. Something like, well, I know there was a Civil War battle here. Now, I can't remember who exactly won, but I'm sure somebody will tell me afterwards. <laughs> well, this woman came up and said, Father, she said, I'd love to give you a tour of the Vicksburg battlefield. And she was a licensed tour guide. So she took a whole afternoon and gave me a tour of the Vicksburg battlefield, which gave me two things, a love of Vicksburg and that campaign, which I came back to when I was Civil War Roundtable president. I helped lead a tour there. And that started me on the Civil War journey. The, the, the books probably a lot of us started with James McPherson, Battle Cry of Freedom, and Lee's Lieutenants, and uh, things like that. So that got me started. I think that's a really great story because it actually shows how important these licensed battlefield guides are. You know, it's yes. sometimes when you have just the right interpreter who can speak and tell that story, it can really capture anyone, uh, regardless of age, it can really bring them into yes. that Civil War buff world. I'm a huge believer in that. I don't have time to go to, but I had a great encounter just this past year at uh, Gettysburg. We just walked in and the, we had a young kid who was in charge of the guide said, oh no, I can't get you a guy until tomorrow. 
I walked up to, over to a bunch of grizzled old veterans with the Gettysburg Foundation. I started chatting them up. They found out who I was. And they recognized my book. I had a tour guy within 15 minutes. These guys are fantastic and one of the best tours I ever had. So I'm 100% on that. You got to walk the ground to understand the battlefield. Well, just diving in here, what was the role of religion during the opening days of the Civil War? Well, that's a great question. Uh, that's why... <laughs> You can start reading my book, both prayed to give you a better picture. But the bottom line was religion before the Civil War was, as one author says, the most dominant social force in the country. And you just have to figure out there there was no national stores. You couldn't buy anything in New York that you could also get in New Orleans. No national newspapers, except I think a Harper's, I, I believe Harper's Weekly or something. That was just a small one. Military is only on the fringes of the country. So the force that really unified the country was churches, so that they, they were the influential factor in the country. Alexis de Tocqueville, in his famous visit to America, I, several, or maybe 30, 40 years before, said, religion is the foremost political institution in the country. So literally, religion was the anchor, and we won't get into it, but America's history was founded on people who came from England, the religious dissidents. So America's history has been founded in religion. The, the book that everybody, at least because the country is predominantly Protestant, Catholics would start flooding in the country right around the time of the Civil War. But predominantly, it was Protestant. That was the Bible. People read the Bible, knew the Bible, quoted the Bible, learned to read from the Bible. So just a dominant culture with religion and faith. Now, a little different in terms of attendance. You didn't necessarily have more people in church on Sunday, maybe about the same as today, but it was the value of religion vis-a-vis -vis other values was infinitely greater. There, there wouldn't have been but a handful of people that would have denied that God existed, only a handful. And nearly everybody would have professed that the commandments are things that all people need to live by. So just as a general factor in the country, the most dominant factor that motivated people. As the Civil War starts looming and there's this big division building between the north and south uh slaveholding and abolitionists what was the role of religion there were there communities being formed in that sense uh, and lines being drawn very much so the 20 the 20 25 years before the civil war were just marked by increasing religion religious rhetoric divisive religious rhetoric the bible which of course people read and followed and lived by that began to actually divide people because slowly you began to have people on both sides supporting what was emerging so you had southern theologians pastors beginning to support slavery as biblically sanctioned james henley thornwell was one baptist not a super educated man, but wrote an extremely influential booklet on the role of slavery, and it became super popular. Northerners connected with abolition. Abolitionism began to support. This came out in, in pamphlets. It came out in newspapers. I jokingly call it dueling bishops in the Catholic Church. You had a Southern bishop named Vero, Augustine Vero, and uh, the man in, in, in uh, Richmond, I think his name was Odin. They would write a support the Southern way in their paper, and it would be responded to by a northern bishop <clears throat> from their response. They would go back and forth on slavery and other things. So, And, of course, both sides would draw upon religion and preaching as justification. You know, the Southerners would say bluntly, and I say this all the time in talks, the Southern preachers would say, show me one place in the Bible where slavery is banned. Show me one place. And you'd, you'd be stunned because there is none, and particularly in the Gospels. So that was a really rock solid position the Southerners had, but the Northerners would try to say, no, you have to look at the context in a bigger way. 
and look beyond just the literalist view of it. So people use scripture, the arguments got increasingly divisive. And then the big factor, and the people don't think of this, the churches began dividing. And this is a really significant factor that a lot of people don't understand. The churches split 25 years before the country split. So in, in 1837, Presbyterians split into old school and new school. Now there was a bunch of issues involved, but at the bottom of it was, was slavery. 1844, 1845, the Methodists and the Baptists both split over slavery because of a, a slave-holding bishop, a slave-holding elder in one case. So that is how, that's the origin of what we now know as the Southern Baptist Convention, which trivial trivial piece of information the only group never never to come back together after the civil war religious group was the baptists southern baptists are still separate to this day now why is that significant say so what churches divide who cares baptists methodists were the largest religious group in the country before the civil war baptists were shortly behind them presbyterians were the third those three groups splitting catch this meant 93% of the South had already split from the North 25 years before the Civil War. People don't think about that. So religiously speaking, they had already divided over slavery. So it prepared the way. So that's a little taste of what the environment was before the Civil War that led up to it religiously. I'm not sure if we have much information on, on this aspect, but I was just thinking about what you were talking about, the Bible and the interpretations of the Bible and how people were relating to that, both North and South, abolitionists and so on. But what about enslaved people or African-Americans? Could they relate to the stories of, you know, Jews leaving Pharaoh, you know, that sort of thing? Exactly. In fact, that was the last chapter I added to my book, Funny Story. I'd completed the book, and I was looking at it, I said, holy Moses, how can you write a book on the Civil War without reflecting on the African-American experience, especially since I worked in the African-American community for 30 years? So I have a whole chapter on what's called The Invisible Institution. And you're exactly right. Uh, before the war, African-Americans were involved in, in faith, but not an organized religion because it was a dangerous thing, as you know, for down south, for slaves to read or to write. So uh, but there's a whole movement among some plantation owners that supported the fact that slaves should be taught about God. So they should know about God because God created them. Now they may be less than human, but God created. So some of them would say, okay, we're going to bring in a preacher. So a lot of these plantation owners would bring in a preacher and the preacher would preach like, okay, be nice to each other. Don't steal your masses chicken. Don't hurt each other. Don't do this. And a very bland religion. When he left, the slaves would go off into the bush. And that's where they would have church. And a street preacher, we would call him today, would get up and maybe he'd memorize a story or two. And you're exactly right. The Exodus story was a dominating story. Being freed from Egypt, being freed from the cruel Pharaoh that beat them down and imprisoned them and held them in slavery. And then their journey for 40 years to the desert, coming into the promised land. So yes, dominant stories. And I'll get to it because we'll probably talk about religion after the war. But that's one of the clearest impacts of the war is what happened to African-American religion after the war. So yes, there was tremendous faith, but not many organized churches already. There was a couple African-American Church that had formed the African Methodist Episcopal AME Zion, AME Church. That had formed earlier, but there weren't too many other organized churches until after the Civil War. Now bear with us. We're going to take a quick break. 
but we'll be right back after these quick messages from our valued sponsors. Williamsburg, Lewinsville, Slaughter Pen Farm, and Fort Sanders. These are not the names of battles commonly discussed amongst those who study the Civil War, but to the soldiers who bled on these untold fields, these battles were lasting memories. Civil War Trails has marked these sites so that we too will not forget. Find more untold Civil War in your backyard by embarking on the trail. See the link in the show notes. Core badges, cloth and metal, ID discs, pipes, stickers inspired by period art, and much more from the settler you know and all love, the Badge Maker. No need to wait for his booth to set up at a reenacting event. Go to his website, link in the show notes, and get access to his wares today. Military Images is America's only magazine dedicated solely to the study of portrait photographs of Civil War soldiers. Their mission is to showcase, interpret, and preserve these rare images. In each quarterly issue of the magazine, readers find a mix of analysis, case studies, examinations of material culture, and personal stories that offer a unique perspective on the human aspect of the Civil War. Subscribe to their paper or digital publications at the link in the show notes. Speaking of Civil War photography, the Excelsior Brigade specializes in ID'd images of the Civil War. Amazing portraits that would cause a collector's display to be the envy of all are available for purchase. They also have period letters, buttons, and medals listed on their website. When planning to buy a gift to awe the Civil War buff in your family, look no further than the Excelsior Brigade. History Fix, the streaming service that not only will satiate your hunger for all things history, but also does much to support historical content creators. Subscribe using the link in the show notes and enjoy programs on the Old West, the Lost Battalion of World War I, the Battle of the Little Bighorn, Antietam, World War II, and even the Global War on Terror. I use 1863 designs for all my graphic design needs. Ty loves the Civil War period, and all his work is diligently researched. If you need a t-shirt design for your next Civil War-themed class field trip, a logo for your Civil War roundtable, or even stickers to express your love for all things Civil War, check out 1863 Designs in the link in the show notes. And don't forget to use the code UNTOLD to get 15% off your purchase. And when the shooting war finally starts, uh, you know, at Fort Sumter, right? I think back on some of the tools, maybe you could even say propaganda that was used during World War II to kind of convince soldiers to fight the Germans or or fight the, the Japanese. Was religion ever used to help justify sort of the fighting war by any side? I guess in the sense that both groups, both sides, would have justified why they fought using biblical reasons. Now, of course, you know, and any fan of the Civil War knows, most Southerners who fought weren't necessarily, they weren't slave owners. They were simple poor Southerners. Most all of us in the Civil War know that fact. But yes, religion was used to justify it because they were on God's side. Both sides would claim that God was on their side. And ironically, here's a piece of trivia, the American Constitution does not mention God, but the Confederate Constitution does. So the Confederate actually worked the phrase into the Constitution relying on God. So, and on their belt buckle, Confederate belt buckle, they have a a phrase about God. So yes, God was used in both sides to, to justify it, but the role of the God and faith in the Civil War grew as the war went on. Because you know this, and all Civil War fans know as well, we didn't think the war was going to last that long, right? It's just going to be over, we'll raise 90-day volunteers or whatever. And then, of course, it went to three-year volunteers. So as the length of the war went on, then clearly faith began to be used more and more. And this is also where 
religious groups started sending chaplains and other things to support the soldiers in the war. Well, that was going to be my next question right there. Uh, who tended to these soldiers' religious needs? Do you know some individual stories about these chaplains? Oh, sure. Let me, before I get that, though, uh, just a couple things. Everybody has probably heard of two groups in the North that helped the troops, the Sanitary Commission and the Christian Commission. I don't know if they know that those are both formed out of religious, by religious people, Presbyterians, uh, right, the Christian Commission and a uh, more Unitarian approach towards the uh, Sanitary Commission. So those, particularly the Christian Commission, would actually pass out pamphlets and religious materials and sections of the Bible. Soldiers, this makes sense, Soldiers didn't want to carry a whole a whole Bible. You know, that, that's too heavy in their backpack. So even then, the American Bible Society, which is around today, was around then. And they would give out just a book of Psalms, just a book of the gospel. So they would bring those out. So those two were big groups. You had uh, revivals played a huge role. I'll just mention that. Not early in the war, but especially around 1863, when it looked like the war wasn't going to end and it's just going on and on and on. And you started seeing battles like Shiloh, you know, and in these very deadly battles in Antietam, people began realizing it's not going to end. That's when revival started coming in. You had on the, on the side, of course, you had nurses. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the 600 Catholic nuns who were nurses in the Civil War. Another kind of forgotten story. The only trained nurses in America at that time with Catholic nuns, because they had had experience in the Crimean War. They worked in their cities they were at in hospitals. So they just had an enormous impact. But of course, you mentioned the, the chaplains. And that is my uh, uh, pet topic. That's the topic of my new book, which will be called Faith of the Fathers, about the 126 Catholic chaplains. I'm just going to mention, pardon me, but I put my glasses on here because I just had to jot down a few funny stories here that you might just appreciate about chaplains. There's about 4,000 chaplains altogether, about 2,400 in the Union, about 938 in the Confederate. But some funny stories about a guy named Charles McCabe, who was with 122nd Ohio. He was imprisoned in Libby Prison with his regiment. And he wanted to cheer the troops up, so he started singing Battle Hymn of the Republic and got everybody in prison singing Battle Hymn of the Republic. Great chaplain story, keeping morale going. There was a Confederate chaplain, Charles Todd Quintard. Fascinating guy. He would be kind of the elite of the elite. He was an Episcopalian. He was a surgeon. So during the Civil War, he was both chaplain and surgeon of the First Tennessee. Uh, he knew every prominent Confederate there was from the top to the bottom. He is known for always carrying two canteens on a battlefield. And for a while, I thought he was the only one. Now I found out since then, several did. One canteen had water and one didn't. <laughs> one had whiskey. So that was Quintard. And he went on to become a bishop after the war and founded a college. We had a very interesting Baptist um, chap, and I have to mention 17th Alabama, who uh, was a Baptist college president after the war, who was the father of Southern Baptist Sunday school literature. Why am I saying that? During the Civil War, he was a sharpshooter. And at Shiloh, he killed six Union soldiers, two general officers, and four privates. And this man became the father of Sunday school literature after the war. So cute stories. You have a man like Father Peter Whalen, a Catholic priest from Savannah, who stumbled into, who heard about this prison that nobody had heard about called Andersonville. And a couple other priests went, but they only stayed two or three days. Whalen was there for six weeks, crawling around in the huts, sleeping outside, coming back in. Before he left, he called on his friends in Savannah, got some donations of money, and made 
tons of loaves of bread. And he had all the bread brought to the prison. And because Wirtz, Henry Wirtz was a Catholic, he allowed Whalen to come in and they passed the bread out to the soldiers. The soldiers after the war said that bread helped sustain them as much as anything else. They call it Whalen's bread. So stories like that. You have colorful chaplains, like one of my favorites. Two Catholic priests have diaries. One is James Sheeran, 14th Louisiana. I, I, I do talks on Father Sheeran. He was a married man. His wife died. His kids died. He became a chaplain of the 14th Louisiana. was in New Orleans. Outspoken, brash. He would talk to anybody. Uh, he could. He was getting in trouble going between a corps because you had to stay within your regiment corps. And so he said, if I said, this is stupid. I need to get a pass to go to all armies. So who do you go to? General Lee. So he walked into General Lee's tent and said, I, uh, I need a pass to go to an army. And Lee didn't recognize him. He'd already been with the army two years. Lee said, sir, you're, you're like any other officer. You know, you need to go through lines, things like that. And Sheeran went off on him. And it's in this book. You said, General Lee, you claim you don't know me. I've been in your army for two years. You've shaken my hand. I've been here all. Every one of your officers knows me. I'm shocked you don't know me. And, and Lee looks up and says, Father, I, I recognize you now. Indeed, I should have recognized you before. Now, what can I do for you? So he wrote him out a personal pass. So story after story. On the Union side, the, the Catholic priest who has the probably the most famous diary of all is Father Corby, William Corby, Irish Brigade, Memoirs of a Chaplain's Life. Great, great account. He has a cute line when he's traveling with the Irish Brigade. Every time they stopped in Virginia, he would say Mass. Then they move on and say Mass. And in his diary, he says, I sanctified another piece of ground in Virginia. So it's just a fascinating way of saying it. So many, many stories. Uh, hopefully my book is going to tell a bunch of these stories, but fascinating men, everyone. And by the way, 14 African-American uh, chaplains, by the way, just so people know, U.S. colored troops. And here's a piece of trivia, a woman chap. Very, very, actually really a strange story. Uh, Ellen Gibson Hobart, the 8th Wisconsin. Her husband was a chaplain. She wanted to be, the federal government refused. So the state of Wisconsin gave her permission, but she never did muster in. No surprise, she became a feminist trailblazer after the war. So don't get me started, I'll go on forever on chaplains, but just a few funny stories. Chaplains really, and chaplains could be very good. The best chaplains were jacks of all trades. I'll just end by saying that. You had a lot of bad chaplains, but the best ones were people who could write letters for the troops take money to the bank, get water during a battle, do all the stuff like that. Those were the best chaplains. They really aided the soldiers in life and, of course, in death, too. And four, uh, four Union chaplains, by the way, got medals of honor for the work they did. Well, you know, you shared these stories, and they're all fascinating. And one thing I would ask is, you know, even today, in very difficult professions, such as policing and also in the military, there are still chaplains. So what does that tell us about the Civil War chaplain's legacy? Oh, that's a good, uh, that's a great question. I was just reflecting on that actually as part of this documentary film I'm working on, which is connected to the book Faith of the Fathers. And in working on that documentary, really dawned on me that chaplains have had a long history in America. It actually goes back to the Revolutionary War. George Washington issued a decree that allowed chaplains, but they were kind of iffy positions. They weren't really confirmed by the government. They're pretty much up to the generals to do it. And same thing in, in the wars after that. It was a civil war that really allowed, officially speaking, chaplains to become part. Actually, it started just before the war. Chaplains were officially allowed, but it was a civil war that officially categorized who they were 
what they were, what their position was. So that was the truly important factor. So the Civil War really kind of began to lay out the foundation of who these men were. Before the war, the chaplains uh, in the United States Army were pretty much, <laughs> were their, they were teachers. They would teach at the West Point, or they'd be on a base doing some teaching there. They weren't primarily so much religious. They had two or three other jobs. It was the Civil War that really narrowed down what exactly their scope of responsibility was. And it really laid the foundation for what, what we now know as our military chaplaincy of today. Father Miller, you've been a priest for, is it over 40 years now? 47. 47 years, yeah. 47 yeah. years. And so with all that experience, how are you able or, or are you able to relate to some of the chaplain stories just from your experience and your background? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's so funny you mentioned that. Just yesterday, I was working on the introduction to this new book, and I was working on the last paragraph. And just yesterday, I typed in that and summing up my book. I'm saying, you know, the 20 years I've been writing this, I have become friends with these guys. And that's the best way to say it. A lot of these guys, I, I feel like I know them. I, some of them, they're they're quirky. Like they're, they're normal human beings like everybody else. Some of these guys are just quirky people. They're kind of strange in different ways. Some of the people I'd like to meet, but not necessarily spend a lot of time with. Some of these guys, I would just love to frankly sit down and have a drink with, you know, and just have a meal with and talk with them. So I very much can relate to the challenges that they had. Uh, obviously, they, they were in a weird position, which priests are today. We have to deal with people at all levels of society. So you can be dealing with upper crust, politicians, mayors, governors, bishops on one level. Then all of a sudden you come back, back to your church and you're dealing with a uh, a very, very poor person looking for money or somebody who's lost their job or somebody who's weak and broken. You have to be able to balance both those same things during the Civil War. You, they, they had to be able to hang around with the generals, then go right down and deal with privates and work with things like that. They had to wrestle with issues of people who are different denominations, just like today. That was not a very ecumenical time, by the way. There was a lot of uh, little backbiting and bickering and a lot of anti-Catholicism. So there's some, uh, they had to fight for their place a couple of times with Protestant chaplains. And you see that coming out. Father, Father Sheeran has a few searing comments. I'll simply say he's not a very ecumenical man. They had to narrowly work that line. And in my book, I tell the story of four or five instances where some really, really close friendships developed, including with a chaplain of a, the Excelsior Brigade, Dan Sickles Brigade, Joseph O'Hagan, who was a Jesuit, who became close to a Congregationalist minister named Joseph Twitchell, who actually became Mark Twain's neighbor. And the two of them developed this friendship because they actually, you know, this is a funny story, after the Battle of Fredericksburg, they were both ministering all night long. And if you remember, if you know your history, it was very, very cold that night after the Battle of Fredericksburg. And they were laying next, close to each other, and they both said, we're freezing. What are we going to do? And one of them said, well, let's spoon. So they actually, O'Hagan and and, and the Twitchell spooned together. And the, the story is told that one of them, they felt a, a rumbling. And the other one said, what are you doing? He says, I'm laughing. He says, what are you laughing at? These conditions? He says, no, I'm laughing at the two of us. A Congregationalist minister and a Catholic priest spooning under the same blanket. What do you think God would think? And the other guy says, I think God would like it. <laughs> so a lot of those, I really relate to those stories. You find so much of the same tension, the same energy, of course, the same faith that motivated these guys. Um, I can't speak for all the Protestant chaplains, but I've done the work of 126 Catholic priests. There is, except for one exception, <laughs> who is an interesting character, Every one of those Catholic priests was just a sterling example of faith and dedication and commitment. So I feel a bond to them like 
like they're my friends, really. Well, that's fantastic. And I know in the beginning of this conversation, we spoke about how religion sort of played a role in dividing the country. However, by the end of the war, after so many people have suffered so much tragedy, I wonder what was the role of religion then? And did it do anything to help bring the country back together? Really good question. Again, I talk about that in the book too. Just a couple of things. Kind of as a general number that people throw out, very hard to measure. But by the end of the Civil War, good estimates say at least half the troops on both sides took religion seriously. So that's a pretty significant factor that by the end of the war, troops were taking it very seriously and being a role in their life. A couple of things happened. One of the clearest results of the Civil War is what I referred to a few minutes ago, African-American religious self-determination. One of the clearest things of the war, whatever it did, it led to three amendments, 13th, 14th, 15th Amendment, which gave African-Americans freedom. And one of the freedoms, even though the Jim Crow laws would come in, of course, as we all know, that's when a lot of African-American churches started. That's when African-Americans were now allowed to form their own churches. And they did in enormous numbers. Got statistics on the church membership in the African-American community went up like six, seven, eight hundred percent in literally 10 years. You often hear about today on the news, historic black colleges. This is when they began. Right after the Civil War, a lot of religious groups came down and started places like Spelman and Tougaloo and Tuskegee and places like that. This is when they start. So black religious self-determination, it's still key. That's why faith to this day in the African-American community is really, really important in the community. Second thing is the lost cause. Several books have been written on that. That's a fascinating topic. The lost cause, we all know, is this Southern attempt after the war to try to make sense out of this massive defeat they had, of course. And it's it's kind of a Southern perspective of looking at the war as, okay, we lost militarily, but spiritually we kind of won the war. And so you see that flavor coming out. So you see the, the almost the deification of a Robert E. Lee, a Stonewall Jackson. They become like revered figures. In fact, there's a couple of funny jokes about a, a kid going to Sunday school and coming home and saying, I thought Robert E. Lee was one on the cross, but they told us this guy named Jesus. So that happened. And all the, the, the funerals, the, the memorial services, the monument dedications, Confederate Memorial Day services, many of them were held in churches and they were presided at by clergymen. So people like Robert Dabney, who was on Stonewall Jackson's staff, people like that were big proponents. So there's a religious, strong religious theme and connection to the lost cause that was part of it. There's several books out that speak to that very clearly. A third thing is what you'd call civil religion. Before Civil War, traditional religion had a stronger impact in the country and really had a chance to really try to take on the slavery issue. Of course, they failed because North and South divided. After that, as we moved into the Gilded Era in the late 19th century and traditional religion began to fade, we have moved into today what we would call a civic religion. And it's kind of borrowed from traditional religion. So for example, we have holy days today. Holy days, July 4th, a holy day. Memorial Day, a holy day. We have a sacred object, the flag. It's almost a sacred venerated object. Look how we treat it, how we put it up on the pole. We have saintly figures, Abraham Lincoln, George Washington. We have sacred texts, right? Declaration of Independence, Gettysburg Address. So the whole civil religion thing that we have, when a president is, is inaugurated, God is brought in. Well, how do they do it? They swear on a, on a Bible, you know? So the civil religion 
has kind of replaced the traditional religion of the day. And the last element I would I mention is what I would call the masculinization of religion. Before the Civil War, it was a very, very feminine religion uh, in the way it was put out there. But the Civil War, I don't know how to say it, just gave masculine religion a real boost. These are men on the battlefield facing death. No time for any frills or cutesy, fancy stuff. This is, where is God in your life? Let's be practical. Let's be pragmatic. Take God into your life and let it change your life. And that affected and went on after the war as well. Uh, many men plugged into church and some of the social, it's called the social gospel movements after the war as well. So that makes, I hope that makes sense. Yeah. No, absolutely. And, you know, you, you shared the story and it's obvious that, you know, religion played a big role at the start of the war, during the war, and even in the aftermath. And yet, for some reason, the story of religion seems to really fall in the realm of untold civil war, which is great for this podcast. But I, I would like to know, why do you think it falls into this realm? Very, very good question. Um, that has kind of been the focus of everything I've tried to do since I've been involved in civil war leadership. Back to the Civil War Roundtable of Chicago. I still do a lot of talks today. And I'm always promoting this single topic. I think it goes back to what we said before. I think it goes the difference between religion and society today and religion and society in the 19th century. We are a post-modern age today. It's a different world. Religion doesn't have the value. A lot of the traditional authority figures, shall we say, don't have the same respect as they had years ago. And religious figures are certainly part of that. So religion has been downplayed in today's society. And of course, today with the scandals we've had both in the Catholic world and the Protestant world and things like that, people now realize, yeah, there's there's things about religion that are not perfect either. So I think for all those reasons, religion is not central in people's lives today. So they read back, and I call that revisionist history. They read back and say, well, it, could not, it couldn't have been that important then either. They're not focusing on it today. So why would we focus that in those days? But they don't understand it was a completely different culture, completely different world. As one author, George Marsden, says, uh, if you try to understand American history without its religious component, it's like trying to read Moby Dick and leave out the whale. And it's the same thing about the Civil War in that era. You can't leave out religion because it was such a key element in people's lives. So uh, that's kind of been my passion. And I hope this video and the books list remind people that faith was an extremely important factor in the war. And uh, the guys, the, the men who served were veterans. Let's remember that. They were veterans, just like every soldier who fought in the Union of the Confederacy. They, too, were veterans. And they laid their life down the line because there were chaplains that died on both sides. So I hope this topic continues to get promoted more. There's more stuff coming out now. There's more books out. And uh, I hope to continue to promote it myself because you, you can't tell the story in today's world, highly postmodern, without telling the story of how cru crucial the influential has been throughout history. Absolutely. And I know people, after they listen to this interview, are going to want to get access to your book. And they're also going to want to know when when is this new book coming out and how can they get access <laughs> to that? And of course, the, the video. So can you share with us how can people get sure. access to the already published book and Sure. What, the, book out called, uh, the book is called Both Prayed to the Same God by Lexington Publishers, 2007. It came out. James McPherson, I was very blessed to have no less than James McPherson do a forward for this one. And uh, James did say he would do a forward for the new book as well, if I can get it out the door. The new book uh, will be called Faith of the Fathers. Uh, there's no publishing date yet. I'm working on the edits right now. 
probably won't be till 2024, maybe 2025, but it's coming out. But uh, as I mentioned to you earlier, before you started recording, there's a documentary film on the book coming out, and uh, it's going to be called Faith of the Fathers. It's going to be about 50 minutes long and lay out the story of religion in the Civil War and six chaplains that served in William Rosecrans' Army of the Cumberland between November of 62 and November of 63. So that'll be available. Um, I'll probably have a separate webpage on that. It'll probably be on Vimeo and things like that. In terms of this book, I recommend Amazon to go on. There's a bunch of different places you can get it. I would say a caveat. For some reason, Lexington wanted to print a hardcover version and a paperback. Unless you've got $100 or more, I wouldn't recommend the hardcover. It's way overpriced, Bob's opinion. Uh, the paperback is out there at a much reduced price. And I know it's on Amazon. You can read parts of it on Amazon as well. Plus, I've got a, I've done a number of talks that are available on YouTube. Kenosha Museum has a couple. I did one on the Notre Dame chaplains, the six Notre Dame chaplains. That's available on YouTube. Some of my other talks, I've done a lot of speaking around the country on other areas. So... A lot of this stuff is available on YouTube and things like that. I do have a website, robertjmiller.net, okay? And people can definitely get something there for sure. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it, and I hope we can do uh, some more collaborations in the future. Yes, that's a guarantee. I'm definitely uh, going to be hooking up with you again. You do a great job of uh, reviewing, and uh, definitely looking forward to continuing to get this topic out there. Thank you for listening to that episode while you stuff stockings, put up a Christmas tree, strategized how you're going to end the war by Christmas, or sitting in your trenches knowing that the generals will never end the war by Christmas. I hope you have a safe evening and tune in next time to the Untold Civil War. <laughs>